from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. On this episode of Newt's World, increasingly Americans are worried about climate change, according to a Gallup tracking poll which asks, is the seriousness of global warming exaggerated, generally correct, or is it generally underestimated? In 2010, 48% of Americans said it was generally exaggerated, 24% said it was generally correct, and 25% said it was generally underestimated. In 2022, those numbers have flipped. 12 years later, 40% of Americans now say global warming is generally underestimated, with 38% saying it is generally exaggerated, and 21% saying generally correct. Many point to the record temperatures, which have caused wildfires and other natural consequences to develop. But my guest today has a different take on climate change and says that understanding the science is much more nuanced than the blaring media headlines would have us all believe. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Stephen E. Coonan. He's a physicist and leader in science policy in the United States. He served as the Undersecretary for Science in the U.S. Department of Energy under President Obama. He is currently a professor at New York University in the Stern School of Business, Tandon School of Engineering, and Department of Physics. And he's here today to talk about his book, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. Steve, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. It's a pleasure to be talking with you, Newt. 
So if you don't mind, let's just start by talking briefly about your background, both your education and training, and in dealing with climate science. So I was an undergrad at Caltech studying physics. I then went to MIT and got a PhD in theoretical physics. That was already almost 50 years ago. And like many theoretical physicists, I've had great fun in poking my nose into other people's business. And along about the late 80s, I got exposed to climate science in the course of doing some work for the Department of Energy and closely followed what was going on, at least in terms of the energy business. When I left Caltech in 2004, I joined BP, the oil company, as their chief scientist. And they certainly didn't need me to help them find oil and gas. They hired me to help strategize for the company in renewable and alternative energy technologies. I did that for five years, learned a great deal about the energy business and energy systems generally, and then went into the government. I was undersecretary for science in the Department of Energy, where my job was pretty much the same in the first Obama administration, helping the government figure out what renewable energy technologies it should be investing in. As you know, people don't last long in Senate-confirmed appointments. After two and a half years, I had had enough, and then I went to New York University, where I've been now for just about a decade, working on climate, energy, and urban issues. I'm curious, just for a second, you were born in Brooklyn. I was. And then you go cross-country to Caltech. What attracted you to Caltech? I think there were two things. You know, the less substantial thing is that it was the late 60s and California was the place to be for young people. So this was as much about the Beach Boys as it was about... Oh, yeah. You know, all the music and California girls and all of that. I wound up marrying a California girl. But more importantly, Caltech had a reputation for being the most rigorous place to get an education in science and engineering. And I wanted to test myself against the very best. In retrospect, when you look back, having been at both MIT and Caltech, do you think that was accurate, that there was a kind of unique rigor to the Caltech system? There is, or there was. Again, I've been disconnected with it for a while. But Caltech had a rigorous education in science and mathematics. I think you can get the same at MIT, but MIT is five times bigger in the undergraduate body and is not quite as strenuous as Caltech was. Now, when you went back to Caltech, I noticed that you weren't just a professor, but you actually served as the provost at Caltech, which is really a very significant position. Yeah, I was for the last nine years I was there, the Institute's provost. In academic speak, that means I was second in command at the university, basically the deputy president. I had a wonderful time helping to shape the program of an institution in which I had spent 20 some odd years already as a faculty member, but also got to get exposed to all kinds of interesting science, biology, engineering, the earth sciences, as well as physics, chemistry, some of the social sciences. With all of that background, when did you really start getting interested in climate and focusing and thinking about climate? I think it was in the early 90s. I was at that time helping the Department of Energy understand what it could do with small satellites, which were then very avant-garde. 
And one of the things you could do is measure how shiny the Earth is, its reflectivity, which is an important parameter of the climate system. And I realized that we could resurrect an old way of doing that, which is to watch the moon. And so I started a program in about 1995 of precision observations of the moon, which continued for 25 years or so. But I didn't really get deeply into the modeling issues or the other data issues until about 2014, when I was asked by the American Physical Society to help them recast a statement about climate change. And when I did that, I realized the science was not anywhere near as settled as I had been led to believe in talking with the media. But let me go back for a second, just because I've expressed my ignorance here. What is it about looking at the moon that gives you the data that looking at the earth would give you? Oh, it's a wonderful technique. I wish I had thought of it. It was first thought of by a French guy in the 1920s. And what you do is the following. You know, when the moon is close to new, and so it's a thin crescent, the rest of the disk is sometimes visible. And that light that is illuminating the dark part of the disk is light that has come from the sun, has been reflected by the earth, and is visible on the face of the moon. And if you think about it for a minute, if you were standing on the moon looking back at the earth, when the moon is close to new, the earth is close to full. And so that light is a wonderful aggregator of the reflected light from the earth on a half a global scale. And the technique had been used through the 1940s, but it gave answers nobody really believed. We resurrected it using modern instrumentation and a modern observing program, and last year published the results of 20 years' worth of data and observations. Hmm. Okay, this is a two-parter. <laughs> so on the one hand, you're basically getting a sense of the reflectivity of the sun off the Earth by looking at how it reaches the moon. Absolutely, that's correct. Okay, and what does that then tell you? Well, you know, the Earth's temperature or the climate system generally is a balance between the sunlight that's absorbed by the Earth and the heat that the Earth radiates into space, infrared radiation. About 30% of the sunlight is reflected and 70% absorbed. If that 30% were instead 31%, it would counteract all of the warming that we're talking about from greenhouse gases. And so it's very important to know the reflectivity very precisely and how it changes with time. But can you actually affect the reflectivity or is that just an observational? Well, no, people have talked about geoengineering schemes in which they would spread an aerosol in the stratosphere much like a volcanic eruption does. And that would increase the reflectivity a little bit and would counteract most of the warming effect from carbon dioxide. You're looking into all this. And one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show is that former Vice President Al Gore just made an appearance on Sunday, July 24th on Meet the Press. And in the interview, he claimed that the record high temperatures sweeping across the U.S is a direct result of climate change. Do you think that's true? No. No. 
We have seen heat waves before, some of them as strong as what we see today in the US or Europe. It is true that the general temperature of the globe has been going up by about two degrees Fahrenheit over the last century and a half, since 1900 or so. But the heat waves that we're seeing and always have seen are the result of the random chaotic motions in the atmosphere. And, you know, one signal or one suggestion that they're not due to global warming is that even as we're seeing high temperatures in the northern hemisphere, we're seeing record cold temperatures in the southern hemisphere winter. Moreover, if you look at the temperature map of Europe a week ago, you saw a big red splotch of high temperatures over Western Europe. But as you got into Ukraine and then on into Russia, what used to be the Soviet Union, it's very cold. And so these are just the result of atmospheric dynamics. Climate happens over many decades, and the ups and downs over one year or one summer have very little to do with what the climate's doing. But the one pattern that I think is among the most sobering is the degree to which, whether it's the Rhine River or the Colorado River, there seems to be, in some areas, a really severe drought. Yeah. And let me pick the southwest of the U.S., which I know better. We are in a drought. I know California data pretty well, kind of somewhere between wet and dry from 1900 up until 2000. And then for the last 20 or 25 years, it's been drifting into drought. That's not at all unprecedented. We have records from tree rings and other data that tell us that there are mega droughts that happen in the Southwest every 500 years or so that are as severe as what we're seeing now. As far as we can tell, the records, of course, are not as good as they are today. As far as water in the Colorado River, we got a lot more people living in the Southwest than we've ever had. And I think one really needs to look in detail about how that water gets siphoned off in order to understand how dry it gets. Okay, so there are practical consequences that may or may not have anything to do with climate change. They may just have to do with weather. Yeah, absolutely. And also how people behave, how we treat our forests, where we do development, how we deal with drainage and water flows and so on. So it's not just the climate. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. In your book, Unsettled, you say, and I'm quoting you, Both the research literature and government reports that summarize and assess the state of climate science say clearly that heat waves in the U.S. are now no more common than they were in 1900 and that the warmest temperatures in the U.S. have not risen in the past 50 years. Now, that is exactly the opposite of the news media headlines. Yeah. And, you know, first of all, those numbers that I quoted and, in fact, have reproduced some graphs from the official report in the book, nationwide, or at least continental US-wide, a goal of 48 states. And it's true. That's what the report says. Now, there are regional differences. The Southeast has actually been cooling a bit. The warmest temperatures have not been going up across the country, although the coldest temperatures have been going up, which is a general behavior that we expect from warming. But You know, that's what's going on in the U.S. We have the best records, the longest and most detailed records. I think people certainly believe that temperatures are going up around the globe on the land areas. That's pretty clear. But again, for the U.S., the data are what they are. You can go look in the reports. I don't know if you have, but I provide all the citations and people can go look it up for themselves. So one of the things I got involved, I taught in the second Earth Day and I became the coordinator of an environmental studies program at West Georgia College in the early 70s. And what I was struck with after a while was how much of the environmental movement is engaged in catastrophism. So Paul Ehrlich explained that Britain would be starving to death by 2000, for example. And you still have this these continuous charges. I mean, one of my favorite ones is Mark Townsend and Paul Harris said, quote, European cities will be plunged beneath rising seas as Britain is plunged into a Siberian climate by 2020. Now, it seems to me that there are two parts of that. One is, if in fact Britain was having a Siberian climate, you would have water being locked up on land into glaciers, 
and the seas would be dropping, not rising. What am I missing here? Nothing. The politicians and, unfortunately, some of the public-facing scientists prey on the ignorance of most people about climate and weather. I often recite, and I think I've got it in the book, a quote from H.L. Mencken, whom you certainly must know, who says, the purpose of practical politics is to keep the electorate alarmed by a series of mostly imaginary hobgoblins so that they can be clamoring to be led to safety. And, you know, it's not only the environmentalists who do that. People talk about immigration sometimes in those terms. The missile gap in the early 60s. This is the only way that people, politicians at least, find to motivate extraordinary action by countries. So the patterns are so striking. You know, hysterical assertion based on theoretical model followed by absence of event. Then it seems to happen over and over and over again. And nobody ever holds them to account. Okay. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I started to see this tremendous disconnect between what the popular and political dialogue was, the world's only got 10 years, etc., and what the science actually said. And so I thought I would write a book that would give people a view into what the official reports actually said. You know, I've often been likened to William Tyndall, whose name you must know as well, a major figure of the Protestant Reformation. And in the early 16th century, he had the temerity to translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. And people got very mad at him when he did that, because he made the scripture accessible to ordinary people, or at least those who could read at the time. And eventually he was burned at the stake. I hope that that doesn't happen to me, at least literally. I was going to say that's a fairly high threat level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, making these complicated issues accessible to non-experts, I think, is something that we as scientists have fallen down on. Now, at the opposite level of sophistication, in late 2013, you were asked by the American Physical Society, which is the professional organization of American physicists, to lead an update of its public statement on climate. And you brought together a workshop that had six leading climate experts and six leading physicists. And you spent an entire day scrutinizing what we think we currently know about the climate system. I get the sense you were really surprised by that workshop. I was surprised, first of all, by how difficult it was to get the two sides to talk to each other. That persists to this day. But I was maybe even more surprised to find out how shaky the science was. I wouldn't deny any of the science. I think the official science when you read the reports, as opposed to the summaries or the media coverage of them, are actually not bad. There are some things I would have changed. But by and large, they're not bad. It's when all of that gets filtered to the public that you see how shaky the science is when you really read the reports. So the conclusions you reached, if I understand it right, are actually much narrower and much less alarmist 
than the normal conclusions that the news media has been reporting and that politicians have been reporting. Yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, when I wrote the book, I tried to stick almost entirely to what's in the reports, the data, the assessments, the conclusions. So when you say, those are the conclusions, Steve, you came to, no, that's what's in the reports. It's just that nobody ever reads the reports because they're enormous, 3,949 pages for the UN report released in August. They're dense scientifically, and you really need to spend time reading them to understand what they say. Okay, so even as well-educated as you were at Caltech and MIT, how long does it take to read 3,949 pages? Yeah, well, you don't read all of it because some of it is tables and so on that just don't carry much information. But I think it took me probably about four or five years to feel like I could credibly challenge what the IPCC was saying. And, you know, I've been teaching for the last three years and will again in September teach a course in climate science at NYU at the graduate level. And I'm very careful to just show them what's in the reports or the research papers. And I can tell you all of them come away with their eyes wide open. Now, you have an intriguing assertion. You say at one point, much of the public portrayal of climate science suffers from Feynman's Wesson oil problem. I'm going to once again prove my ignorance. I know Feynman, I've read some of his work, but what is the Wesson oil problem? Yeah, so Feynman in famous speech called Occult Science, which he gave in, I think, 1974 at Caltech, talks about the difference between scientific honesty and advertising. And he says, I won't get it exactly right, but he says something like, you know, last night I heard a commercial for Wesson Oil. And it said, Wesson Oil doesn't soak through foods. And he says, you know, that's absolutely correct. But what they didn't tell you was that all oils soak through foods. And so that's the difference between persuading and informing. And I would assert that most of the media coverage and most of the summaries of reports are about persuading people that there is a crisis, as opposed to informing people about what the real science is. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Before we get into the politics of it, in your judgment as a physicist and as somebody who's been leading academic officer of probably our best scientific university by a huge margin, what would you say is the state as a science of what we call this kind of weather science or this kind of climate science? What would you say is the degree to which we actually don't yet know what we don't know? So we know some things. We know that the globe has warmed, as I said, about two degrees Fahrenheit since 1900. We know that humans are exerting a warming influence on the globe through the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We are much less certain about how the climate system will respond to those influences, in part because the system is complicated, and if you push it in one direction, it does some funny things. The other is that the system has a lot of internal variation of its own. Things like El Nino, which happened every five years or so, and other longer-term cycles in the system that are entirely natural that can extend for 70 years or even more. So where we fall down is how warm is it going to get as greenhouse gases accumulate? And then maybe more importantly, what are the impacts of other weather phenomena, storms, droughts, floods, and so on? And then finally, how is all that going to affect society? How will it change the economy? How does it change living patterns? And then maybe the bottom line question is, what do we do about all of this? And for those last two or maybe last three questions, how is the climate system going to respond? What are the impacts and what do we do? I think the title of my book, Unsettled, is probably the best summary. Which means that, and this, of course, is one of the differences between politicians and physicists. The physicists can say, you know, if only we had time to do about 400 more experiments, we'd be further down the road. And the politicians told, we need an answer at three. (laughs) You know, that's a wonderful dialogue. And I think people don't appreciate the proper relative roles there. I think the scientist's role is to lay out the certainties and uncertainties, lay out various options. But ultimately, the decision about what we do is a political decision. And I, as a scientist, I think I have to leave it to people like you who can weigh many other factors in trying to decide what to do. Not my job. 
okay? Unfortunately, many people in the climate science field think it is their job, and that greatly distorts the business. Look, we had the same experience last two years with COVID, where you had public health officials making extraordinary society-wide decisions based on a really narrow public health view without any look at all the other kind of holistic things that go into how life occurs. I couldn't agree more. That's a perfect analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very important that scientists should do really good science, but not confuse what they think is certainty, which by definition doesn't exist in science, which is the other thing. I mean, all science is subject to change. I love paleontology and the great breakthroughs in the 60s and 70s when they finally figured out that, in fact, birds were dinosaurs and the dinosaurs had feathers, which just radically changed what every professional paleontologist on the planet believed. And there's a tendency to then say, okay, now we know it for sure. But you don't because it's constantly evolving. Your knowledge is always evolving. All science is provisional. That is a wonderful way to put it. And therefore, the really large society-wide decisions have to be made in an atmosphere and environment of uncertainty. Yes, and there are many competing societal factors, which we can get into, that may say you should or you shouldn't make a crash program to reduce emissions. Right. And there may be good reasons to do something different than the immediate scientific prescription. You know, the other thing I have to say is, because of my general interest in the natural world, when you go back and look at the really big die-offs, there are things like huge volcanic eruptions. I mean, 600 years of volcanoes putting sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, poisoning the oceans on a grand scale. And these things occur every two, 300 million years. I mean, it's not something I worry about next Thursday. But it's just interesting that the planet has been evolving and changing and reshaping for its entire history and is probably going to continue. Yeah. And, you know, in the big picture, that's driven evolution. And overall, it's probably been a good thing. But if you're the evolvee trapped in one of these catastrophes, it's not so pleasant. The most recent new insight, which may be true, is that, in fact, you have this sudden explosion in the late Triassic in which dinosaurs become dominant. The newest theory is there was actually a period of extraordinary cold, and the dinosaurs had feathers and therefore could endure the weather change when their competitors couldn't. Now, this is so opposite of how, when I was young, we would have thought of dinosaurs. And you see this, by the way, if you look at the famous dinosaur movies, because they're having to change to catch up with the science, which is literally changing between movies. I mean, right. there's that much discovery underway. You know, it sounds like in another life, you might have been a paleontologist, and I might have been an earth scientist, right? Well, I think it's fascinating. Now, imagine that this, this is a wild thought, and you don't have to take me seriously here, because I'm clearly just talking as a citizen politician and not as a very knowledgeable scientist. But imagine that somebody like Gore had decided that plate tectonics was dangerous, and we needed a worldwide project to stop the continents from drifting. <laughs> it's an exactly parallel example of suddenly inventing a problem that, in fact, is a process, not a problem. That's right. We ought to think about who we could get to do a podcast on the crisis of plate tectonics. You know, 
most geologists, as opposed to climate scientists, most geologists have a, let me say, less than alarmed view of climate change because they have this big picture. You know, one of the things that most annoys me when we get on to societal issues for a minute is when you hear Al Gore talk or I hear the president talk or any of the popularizers. There are three or four billion people on this planet who do not have enough energy to live anything like a modern life. Refrigeration, round-the-clock lighting, mobility, so on. And they need that energy to improve their lot. And nobody ever talks about how you're going to get them that energy without fossil fuels. I can tell you wind and solar are just not going to do it for them. Well, you're exactly right. And it's an interesting phenomenon that driven by people who live very often in high-rise buildings with permanent air conditioning and heat and who have wonderful lives of traveling in jet aircraft to various very, very nice resorts, these are the folks who are defining what the crisis is. And you're exactly right. Well, 4 billion people are living at a standard level that's closer to 1900 than to where we are today. And that there's no serious movement that says, what would it take both in food and in energy for these people to live the fullest possible life? That's a fascinating point. A good friend of mine, was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations Food Organizations and would drive him crazy because he said the Europeans would adopt these rules that guaranteed that Africans wouldn't have enough food, but it made people in Brussels feel really moral. Right. It's eco-colonialism, all right? You know, there was a social scientist named Anthony Downs who was working in the late 60s in Los Angeles at UCLA, and he wrote a paper in which he made the observation. He was watching cars become more and more common and increasing pollution in the basin. And he made the observation that the elite's environmental problems are often the common man just trying to improve his lot. And that's exactly what we see with the undeveloped countries and people who want to shut down all fossil fuel use. I have to tell you, I'm really impressed with the quality of your commitment to actually thinking. It's obvious to me that you approach things with huge curiosity and you actually allow facts to drive your effort to understand them. Thank you. And this probably goes back to your high school years and maybe why you went to Caltech. Yeah, I was always, you know, driven by facts and trying to understand the world. Of course, my wife of 47 years would say that there's not enough emotion in my perspective, but okay, she's learned to live with it. <laughs> that could be a whole different conversation someday. I find a lot of emotion in this kind of conversation because to me it's exhilarating to be able to think broadly about how one might pursue the world. Your book, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us and What It Doesn't and Why It Matters, is an essential read. It will help really open people's minds. We're going to have a link to buy your book on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I just want to thank you for one of the more exhilarating conversations I've had as part of Newtsworld. Well, thank you for being a great interlocutor. I've had a lot of fun talking with you. 
Thank you to my guest, Dr. Stephen Kunin. You can get a link to buy his book, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo. Play.